This episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. For me, McDonald's is a place I go to get a pick-me-up when I'm feeling down, and the people that make that possible are McDonald's great crew members. Whether they're remembering your usual order or providing fast and friendly service, a huge thanks to McDonald's crew members for making everyone's McDonald's visit special. McDonald's, I'm loving it. I find you a job. I press your uniform. I prepare two meals a day. I move mountains to scrape you off the floor and put you back on your feet. And what do I reap? What is the return on my investment? That, by the way, is also what Patrick Willem says to me before we begin recording every week. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV. I am David Chen. And I'm Patrick Willems. On today's episode of Decoding TV, we're going to be discussing Season 1, Episode 9 of Andor, entitled, Nobody's Listening! David, Nobody's I- Listening! And I yep. just say straight up, we were bemoaning the fact that the episode titled <laughs> Announcement, uh, it created a bad podcast title for us because mm-hmm. it made people think that it was not about an episode, that it was just us making an announcement. And this episode is going to sound like we're complaining about, it, it, about it sounds the fact like that, for help. It sounds like yeah, for help, it's like you know? nobody's listening to our podcast. <laughs> But well, hopefully fact, they are, because we have a good episode of Andor to talk about. Indeed. That's just the title of the episode, though. Also, but I, I think it's the first one that has an exclamation mark or any punctuation really in it, other than like dashes and stuff, right? Like, yeah. I mean, these episode titles tend to, tend to be like a word. <laughs> and, uh, and this is at least a sentence. But it's nobody's listening! Exclamation mark. So, yeah. um, and, and therefore, contractually, you must read it that way at all times. You have to. Um, you can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. And find us on YouTube and TikTok and Twitter at decodingtv. Patrick, before we get into Season 1, Episode 9, as usual... We got to correct some errors that were made last episode. We got to follow up on a few things, a lot of comments, a lot of emails. Keep those emails coming into decodingtv at gmail.com. Uh, I want to start by saying uh, Niamos, Morlana Club Mix. Uh, we had said that this was a track that did not appear until later on in the series. In fact, Niamos, which appears on the soundtrack that has been released, appeared in the very first episode of. Uh, Andor. It was the song playing in the club, in the brothel that Andor walks into. In it the was very diegetic music? Yes, diegetic music. I went back, I actually rewatched the first few episodes of Andor this week, because the show is really good and I enjoy watching it. And, um, and yeah, Wait, it, David, it, it, David it you have time. <laughs> you have time not only to sleep in between your millions of podcast <laughs> recordings, but also to re-watch the shows that you're already covering? I'm not re-watching every show, Patrick Willems. Okay. Uh, I'm, but Andor, uh, the show is really good. The show it's is really, really good. It, it's so really good. It's, it's very delightful. Anyway, so many people point out the Niamos track does appear uh, on uh, on the opening episode. So it technically was in the first four episodes, even though we heard it again later wow. on when uh, we visited the planet of Niamos. So this This raises questions suddenly mm-hmm. I, I wasn't aware of this mm-hmm. uh okay first of all this means that they listen to nicholas Bertel music uh <laughs> in in the world of star wars mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh secondly i wonder <laughs> as far as i'm aware star wars fans and, and experts correct me if i'm wrong but the only genre of music in the world of star wars that i'm aware of is jizz 
Mm-hmm. And uh, David, you're familiar with jizz, right? Uh, tell me about jizz, Patrick. Uh, jizz is uh, spelt like jazz, but with an I instead of an A. Mm, uh, okay. Is the the uh, is the is the kind of music that's usually played in cantinas? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Figrin Dan and the Modal Nodes. Uh, uh, the do you think there's like different qualities of jizz, or is it just all like one consistency? Well, this, this is my question because uh, we hear jizz music. It is specified that we are hearing jizz music in the in the cantina in A New Hope. That we are mm-hmm. hearing jizz music, uh, you know, in Jabba's palace. Um, and I'm just I'm wondering. Well, those types of music also sound vaguely similar, mm-hmm. while this this like club music, you know, like Morlana club mix, sounds yeah. so different. And so I'm wondering: is this does this still fall under the classification of jizz, or is this, I don't know, some some new some new right, genre some new that we're, genre we're of not music. aware? It's a, it's a good question. I, I have so many questions about jizz in the Star Wars universe. Like, if we were in the Star Wars universe, would like, and you, you know. Uh, had jizz that you liked and i had jizz would the, the jizz be different you know like would, would it, or would it all kind of sound the same you know what i'm saying like yeah that's that's my question david um, are you are you aware of the official star wars term for a jizz musician no what is it it's a jizz whaler <laughs> fascinating fascinating I'm, I'm so happy whenever someone gets to learn that for the first time yeah, no, no, no. I mean, this has enriched my life immeasurably, Patrick. So thank yeah. you for that. Um, but anyway, thanks for the corrections on that. Appreciate it. Uh, Patrick, last week you made reference to a line that Sinta uh, says about Vel being, you know, having a rich family. And mm-hmm. I did not hear it. And many people said they heard it. And it actually led to some speculation as to who Vel actually is. Um, somebody on our YouTube comments speculated that Vel might be Luthen's daughter, which I thought was a pretty good theory. A little obvious, but a pretty good theory. And I was a little bit bummed that we didn't have a chance to put out that theory because uh, if, if and when we found out when who Vel was, we'd look like geniuses. Uh, well, I'm glad we didn't put out that theory because this episode we found out who Vel is and... I don't believe it is Luthen's daughter. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that that would be after what we learn here. That would make things very like very yeah. convoluted. Yes. Um, but I will say I am just happy that uh, for once a comment confirmed that Patrick was correct. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. I usually expect them to tell me where I'm wrong or I missed yeah. something. So this time I was on the right track. Christopher at youtube.com slash decoding TV wrote about Saw Gerrera uh, and provided some background information. It's important to note one of the reasons why Saw Gerrera is annoyed with some of the other factions in the rebellion. Gerrera was in an anti-separatist resistance group from Onderon in the Clone Wars and separatists killed his sister during a mission, end quote. I, so, I've seen that episode. I hmm. have seen that one. I think that one of the things that's interesting to note too is uh, that like some people on the on the on YouTube and other places have been commenting how much care and attention has been paid to the lore in this show for one of the shows that probably is least lore heavy or lore emphasizing you know what i'm saying like yeah. you don't need to know any lore to watch andor but um but if you know a lot of the lore it does reward you for that right i i know um 
I recall in in one interview with Tony Gilroy, I listened to it might have been the one on the the Empire podcast. He talked about how on the show, uh, he worked very closely with Pablo Hidalgo, who's the head of the Lucasfilm Story Group. Where basically, because Tony Gilroy is like, I don't know much about Star Wars, he would just say like, we need like a model of ship. We need uh like a planet. Just a little, like fill in the blanks here, and then and then Pablo Hidalgo would just be like. Here, here, just like kind of like insert the uh, the I guess like continuity like uh, correct uh, things uh, to slot them in there, and that really is like kind of the ideal way that the the Lucasfilm story group should should work, where it's like the filmmakers have their story, and then they just help like fill in the blanks or like connect the dots or whatever, just so that it all links up, but it also that but the continuity never gets in the way of the story they're trying to tell. Yeah, I mean, I think we have swung really far in the other direction in the last few years, right? But um, but I think that... I don't know if I would say that's ideal, Patrick. Like, I would say probably the ideal is somewhere in between, where, like, the lore helps to motivate a big story, and then, like, more lore helps to fill in the, the blanks, but, like... Uh, but that the story can stand on its own. Like, you know... Right. So, I, I think that's probably... But anyway, either way, what, however they're doing it, it's going great in Andor, right? So, yeah. And uh, although, again, what I think is very funny is not so great for the people who uh, who's, who's like uh, job it is to literally make videos about Easter eggs. <laughs> yes, indeed. I, there uh, was uh, I, a, a day or two ago, there was this like IGN video going around that people were dunking on on Twitter uh, about there was like, here's an Easter egg from the latest episode of Andor. And it was just that it was the same kind of security camera that showed up in one shot in, in one scene that was also in A New Hope. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, man, the, the, the Easter egg hunters are, are, are sorry, the, uh, the, the gunters are, are really uh, are really grasping at straws to find mm-hmm. anything to talk about here. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. You know, nope. m- movies and TV shows can be more than just Easter egg hunts. Uh, they can have stories that stand on their own. Uh, and that's what we're looking for and enjoying in a show like Andor. Exactly. So Patrick Willems. David Chen. First of all, big thanks to all the people that wrote in, commented, youtube.com slash decoding TV, decoding TV, gmail.com. Keep those messages rolling in. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of season one, episode nine? Nobody's listening. <laughs> I... I, I love that you're keeping that going. Yes. I, I, David Chen, I thought this episode was terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it might have actually been better than last week's, which I thought was great. Um, it, 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 it genuinely had, especially the, uh, the early uh, interrogation stuff with Bix was maybe the most like, some of the most harrowing stuff I've ever seen in anything Star Wars related. Honestly, one of the more harrowing interrogation scenes I've seen in anything in a while. Yes. Yes. Uh, they found a a a a, uh, a a genuinely like inventive and like astoundingly cruel new way to torture someone. And the uh, the whole uh, the whole prison storyline became. We talked last time about how it was sort of kind of like a great dystopian science fiction uh, story about this like uh, just 
impossibly horrible prison system and it got worse this time around and uh and the developments there loved them all thought they're all fascinating andy circus got way more to do this time around um i'm i mean i i i i you know what to make a reference to our sponsor for this episode i'm loving it (laughs) well i really enjoy this episode as well i mean it is definitely we you sense kind of the structure of the show it definitely feels like the midpoint of a three episode arc uh, and that is what it is, right? And with the final, you know, next week will be the concluding part of this arc. And then there's going to be two additional episodes. What a blessing to have 12 episodes of this show, Patrick, huh? Um, so you, you definitely feel like it's kind of one of those middle transition episodes. But I agree with you, this idea of uh, the torture methods were really creative um, without being graphic, you know, which is really, they, they really kind of thought about, hey, if, if we were going to, let's start from the ground level of like, we want to torture someone into submission, but we don't want to make it graphic because that's not, this is a family show. Uh, how would we do that? How would we use our imagination to do that? And the way they came up with was uh, incredibly disturbingly creative, I will say. So anyway, I, I like the episode as well. And I mean, if you are shipping Karn and Miro, this really, this David. episode delivers the goods. You know what I'm saying? Like, David, I, I, I was going to wait to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's I've wait. Let's the wait most to important talk about part it. of the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll because, wait. I mean, I've, I've, I've been on board the Kiro ship for a yes. while now, yes. and and that that Kiro ship. I mean, our, we we are hoisting the sails. Pull, yeah, pull, uh, you know, pull up anchor, and we're you know climb aboard because the ship is out of the out of you know whatever the ship terminology is. That's what it is. Well, we're out of the harbor, man. <laughs> yes, we're out of the harbor. We're in the high seas. We're exploring brave and bold new territory right now with the Karn Miro ship. This episode, so. Hashtag Kiro for those uh, following along on Twitter. Yes, indeed. Okay. So let's dive into the episode, Patrick Willems. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to start by talking about all the stuff that happens on Narkina 5. Okay? So we'll dive into all the Narkina 5 stuff. It's very separate than all the other stuff that happens in the episode. So we'll do the Narkina 5 stuff first. Then we'll get to what happens the rest of the episode. Um. The short version of what happens in this plotline is that uh, one of the people on Andor's crew of workers uh, slowly becomes more and more infirm until the end of the episode uh, when he suffers a massive stroke and then is euthanized. Which also makes me wonder, again, I'm not... Two things I, I, I want to preface this with. First of all, I'm I'm sorry that I keep constantly bringing up things where I'm like... I've never seen this in Star Wars. Uh, and also, I'm sorry if this has happened in Star Wars, and I'm not aware because I haven't read every tie-in novel ever written, but is this the first time someone's ever had a stroke in Star Wars? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, People I don't always know. die from getting hit by blasters, yeah. or they die of, uh, like in Revenge of the Sith, of a broken heart, or mm. by often uh, being impaled with a lightsaber. <laughs> uh, I've never heard of anyone suffering a massive stroke in Star Wars. Uh, And so this was, again, one of these kind of like, it's shocking to see these like very ordinary, like real world things just happen here. Yeah. 
I mean, this is what Andor is giving us as a society. A Star Wars that you can relate to. Corporate bureaucracy. People struggling with health issues that we deal with uh, in our lives. And uh, that's one of the, the reasons why uh, I'm really enjoying it and, and fi- enjoying the show and finding it to be uh, really relevant in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, Andor this is... Star is... Wars tackles the prison industrial complex. Indeed. I mean, Andor is anti-government, anti-cop, you know, anti-prison industrial complex. It's... Uh, and Disney is a company that made it, you know? So it's really fascinating to to ponder the themes of this show. Uh in addition to Andor's colleague Olaf kind of slowly fading during the course of this episode and eventually being euthanized, we learn a few other things. Andor is collaborating with uh, another person that is working on his floor to try to detect weaknesses in the system. There's a moment where he's like, "Okay, let's just go for it now. Like, let's just let's just do it and be legends. Let's just attack him now." And the guy's like, mm, "I don't quite think it's 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 ready yet." Um, well, one thing that I thought was interesting um, because the show is always cross-cutting between multiple storylines. And uh, I'm wondering about the passage of time because this episode seems, when it picks up on Narkina 5, it seems like it's set at least a week after the last episode left off. Like Mm -hmm. Cassian's been there for a little while, long enough to have like worked out a routine, to have really gotten into the the swing of things with like the work they're doing uh, enough to clearly like have a routine of taking a bathroom break, hammering out this little uh, panel in the wall where he has a little like, like makeshift saw to saw yeah. away at, at, at this pipe. Uh, and like they're actively planning uh, yeah. an escape. And yet, so this is a, I'd say at least a week jump in time. And, uh, and then with Bix, uh, I don't know if I would come to that conclusion yet, Patrick. I just want to put that out there, like because at last episode we saw like thirty shifts later, flashback, flashback. So oh, okay, it's, true. So it's true. very possible that like during that time he's already like befriended people and so we didn't see we didn't see any of that last episode, um, but it's possible it was already all happening. Okay, I, true. I, I don't but, know. Yeah, but yeah. even even taking that thirty yeah. shifts later into account, uh, it seems like wait, like it's only been a few days on Ferrix since. He visited there, and yes. then, uh, and 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 then, uh, Dedramiro is talking to Bix. Yes, and so I'm wondering, it's just like, I, I, I'm sure they'll they'll explain it all at some point, and this is not a complaint. I'm just wondering what the 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 the, the, the timelines time yeah. are. Yeah, this is a thing that happens with shows like uh, Game of Thrones or whatever, where like you have multiple timelines that are evolving at different paces, and then at some point they're all going to intersect. You know, right. we'll, we'll find out when it is. But yeah, yeah, uh, I'd agree. It's getting a little complicated when it comes to the timeline. Can I also um, mention one thing that I, I just learned before the recording of this that I thought was fun? Okay, tell me. Uh, so do you remember <laughs> a dumb comment I threw out in uh, in episode six? Mm-hmm. Uh, our our episode about episode six, where I said that uh, so in the scene where Skeen dies, where uh, Andor kills Skeen, I was like, Skeen looks kind of like one of those muggers at the very beginning of the 1989 Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that the actor who plays Olaf was one of the two muggers in the oh. opening scene of the 1989 Batman. Oh my God. He's wow. the guy that Michael Keaton says I'm Batman to. Incredible. Incredible. What a career. Yeah. What the, a career. Uh, the, the actor is Christopher Fairbanks, uh, or Fairbank. Um, 
And uh, yeah, uh, you know, they they shot Batman in the UK. Uh, he was doing an American accent there. But yeah, he he he's the guy who said, what are you, man? Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Amazing pull, Patrick Willems. Nicely done. Nicely done. Thank you. Um, so a few other things happened this episode, right? Like Olaf is like slowly fading. He he's not as fast on his feet with his hands and uh, starts forgetting things, and so you kind of see his decline. There's um, a really you- stressful part when uh, they have one of those times where they're all ordered to like stand straight and put their hands on their heads, yeah. and he can can't, and he's basically like having a stroke and can't even stand up, and they're all trying to prop him up just yeah. so that like he doesn't get like pulled aside or flagged and. And uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's really tense stuff. Yeah, there is a scene that happens in these tubes that they kind of wait in as they go to and from their work area. Um, and obviously, some of the people have figured out a way to use hand signals to communicate with others. But what they discover is that there's been some kind of accident on one of the other uh, floors or something like that. It's very vague at first. It's floor but two. Just floor something two, happened yes. at floor two. So. My understanding of what happened this episode, Patrick, is that um, they let someone out. It was like someone's turn to leave. They finally got to the end of their sentence, and they, you know, they couldn't keep doubling it for some reason. They're just like it's. They got to the end of the sentence, and they move that person rather than release them. They move them to another floor. Uh, that person presumably was unhappy about it. Told everyone about what happened, and then. Uh, there was an uprising or people started thinking about having an uprising and the prison's way of dealing with it was just to literally murder all the people on that floor. That's, yeah. To just, that's my you know, interpretation. Right? electrify the floors and killed them all. Yeah. And y- which unit is two, five unit two, five, I believe this is what it is. So yeah. Yeah. Um, which yeah, uh, is horrifying. Because an, an idea of a, of a prison where y- you spend all your time there working uh, and like doing the work uh, in in the hope that eventually you'll finish the work and will reach the end of your sentence and will be set free. And this is basically just confirming that, no, you'll just be shuffled into a new part of the prison and recycled forever uh, because you are disp- just a, as they say in this episode, they are cheaper than droids. They are utterly disposable and uh, that they are just trapped there forever. And I thought one of the most powerful parts of this episode was watching uh, the arc that Andy Serkis's character goes through. Yes. Because he's introduced in the last episode really just as like the jerk who's like the prisoner who's kind of like taken the sides of the guards and just as like – He's like on the other side just to like get ahead and just yells at everybody to like stand up straight and work harder and stuff like that. And and in this episode, you you know, you realize that like he, you know, really has believed that like like by following the rules, they will get through this and be treated fairly and be released. And then him just like like watching his face as he's like learning this information and still having to like keep doing his job as he's giving the orders and shouting at them to stand up straight and fall in line and all of that while he's learning that like oh all of all of these rules that he had bought into are absolutely a lie that he is just going to he's stuck there forever until he dies just like everyone else and basically like this is the beginning of him pretty much being radicalized and like at i mean the the 
the final line of this episode yeah. is so good and so exciting. Like, it's interesting comparing this to uh, the Aldani arc because the Aldani arc uh, in in its second episode was very much the, like, let's slow down and get to know all the characters and talk more and learn about everyone's backstories and motivations and stuff like that. And I feel like this second episode is just escalating everything and just ramping everything up to the point where like, we're ready for things to explode as soon as the next episode begins. Yeah. Uh, Agreed completely. What's so great about Andor as a show is you get to see characters evolve, process new information, and also realize the fundamental injustice of the systems that they're in. Um, they, they, as you said, come in thinking that if they follow the rules and do what they're told, that everything's going to be okay. Um, and when they learn that that's not the case, uh, they often decide to take action because, like, what at that point, what is there to lose? And that's certainly the journey that we see Andor go on. Right. And uh, also now Kino Loy, played by Andy Serkis in the show. Um, and I do also think I appreciated the nod to kind of the Star Wars question of why were there droids before, but now there's human stormtroopers, you know, like why? And and the answer is they're cheaper, like hu- like people are cheaper to make and control or not make, but like control and and manage than um, and are more disposable than droids, I guess. Um that was like kind of a, a big question that people had after seeing Phantom Menace, right? And uh, now it is reaffirmed in this, uh, this show as well. Uh, another thing that someone at DecodingTV.com pointed out or commented or speculated is like, do we think these folks are building the Death Star, Patrick Willems? Like, w- what are they working on exactly? I mean, it could be anything. It could be anything. Like, it, that's, it could that's, be TIE that's, Fighter I, parts. It could be the Death Star. It could be anything. I didn't know if you had it in your head canon. I didn't know if you thought it was anything specific. I, I, I mean... <sighs> I, I thought a bit about it in the previous episode yeah. uh, when we're looking at what they're building. And it's like they're just building the same like gear or same like just I guess piece of machinery over and over and over again. And considering how giant all the structures in Star Wars are, like how massive a Star Destroyer is, uh, I'm like it could be anything. Uh, these yeah. pieces could go into literally anything. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and, and also considering how uninterested Tony Gilroy and and his team seem to be in Easter eggs are like are like winking at you like uh like ooh like uh oh 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 this character yeah. is this person you recognize. I would not be remotely surprised if we never find out what they're building if it's just stuff for something uh and there's no big reveal where the like i don't know where some imperial guy says uh sir look how much of the work we've done on uh on project death star or or, and then we like see a computer scheme with like to show how like a partially built death star uh like i'm not expecting that to happen i do think that one of the things that andor does really well is it uses implication and hinting and things in the background and or weaponizes your imagination against yourself basically so uh there's lots of people in the show and or that are put through terrible things um they're tortured or uh they have physical punishment enacted on them and the show is really careful to not be graphic about these things 
you often see them in the background or you only see people's reaction to the thing. You don't actually see the thing that happens. And I think that's really good filmmaking because what you imagine in your head is probably worse than anything they could come up with, you know, in terms of visuals or makeup or uh, special effects. We see that in Andor episode nine with both uh, a bunch of prisoners on Narkina 5 getting zapped again. Uh, and also uh, Bix and the thing that she goes through, which we'll talk about later, um, we we never really see directly kind of the consequences of it. We just get to imagine it in our head. And I, I think that's really great filmmaking. Whenever you see the people zap, they're always like kind of in the background and out of focus in general. Yeah. Right? And so you're just like imagining what's going on. And I, I think a major part of this is carrying on uh, one of the great Star Wars traditions that's been true since the very first movie, which is just having like the best sound design in the game. Yeah, totally. I like. I we'll talk about the Bix scene, but the I, I I've I've rewatched that scene a few times, and the the sound just the use of sound in there, like like in, in that sequence with the scene transition is. One of the more impressive small bits of filmmaking I've seen in a while, and uh, and yeah, again, it's just uh, the the sound for the uh, like the floors electrifying the 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 sounds yeah. for you know people getting zapped. It is like it they stick with you the first time you remember them, and they make an impression every single time they appear. Totally, totally. Any other thoughts on the Arkina Five storyline, Patrick Williams? Before we move on. Um, it is, uh, I, I have heard there, I mean, in general, it seems like the show is, has been received very positively across the board. Uh, even though it seems like it's, it's not creating quite as much like, like mainstream buzz as prior Star Wars shows. Um, and one of the, the few complaints I see pop up now and again is that, uh, uh, Cassie Andor seems a little bit more passive and a little bit yes. uh, like like less defined as a character than other people in the show. And I think this is very much intentional and that the, the arc of this season is really about how a guy who pretty much wants to live passively in the background and not get involved in anything is like through a series of events that happen to him it reaches the point where he sees no option other than to get completely involved. And, and in this episode, like, uh, cause like you look at the last one and he's mostly, he's getting shuffled through the prison. He's like, he, we talked about it. He pretty much, he, he utters like what a line or two of dialogue in the last episode, like yeah. barely anything. And in this one, he is already like, when, when we jump in, he uh, is already like, like working with other prisoners, uh, starting to plan potential uh, escape routes. Uh, they are strategizing, keeping track of like the guards' routes, keeping track of when and when and when they aren't wearing the boots to protect themselves uh, from like meaning like oh if they don't have the boots on they're not going to electrify the floors right now uh, and so we could be safe to attack them. Uh, that kind of thing. He's like he's getting angry in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and especially specifically like angry at like the Imperial system at large, like, like the scene, the scene where the title of the episode comes from. And David, what's the title of this episode? 
Nobody's listening. 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 But in that scene, that happens when they're in their bunks at night. Usually what we're used to in we've seen a whole lot of movies and TV shows with stories set in prisons. And we're used to to scenes where people are like are in their cells at night and they're talking and then guards come around and like bang on 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 the bars and are like quiet in there, like no talking at night, like that kind of thing. And here, this is so different because Cassian is there yelling in his cell uh, to to the guy who is presumably like in charge of him, uh, and and no one cares. Uh, no one is listening. The uh, the the empire is so confident in the system that they've, they've created. They think so little of the people in this system that they're not paying attention to them at all. And uh, and Cassian is both angry about how dehumanized they are and also uh like take like planning to take advantage of the overconfidence of the empire you you i i i I can even though he doesn't actively like make any huge leap in this episode i can see the evolution happening there with his character i can see how like probably next episode he's gonna maybe make a jump forward Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think it's a great point about Andor's arc on the show Andor. Like, it's a great point about casting Andor's arc on Andor because um, it works on two levels. Number one, on a filmmaking level, it's just more interesting to have an Andor that is super passive and just trying to get by and survive and doesn't want to get involved with any causes before he becomes the character that we see in Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Uh, Like if he had already started the show Andor as captain in the rebellion, it's like, okay, that's, you know, where, where does that character have to go? So they, they clearly start him at a much more interesting point, I think, to see that journey. But the, the show Andor is obviously making, I think, a broader point that uh, when you see the forces of evil rise up uh, and you try to continue living your life of comfort, pretty soon you will be unable to do that and you will be forced to act. And it is up to you to decide when that is. Um, but the sooner you act, usually it, it will go better for you. And, uh, I think that's something that's very, uh, a potent message for our times right now. So anyway, that is the Andor Narkina five storyline for this week's episode of the show. I, I, before we, we leave off this, uh, this part of the episode, we do have to bring special attention just to the final scene of this episode. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's very important, and I and I really want to just talk about the final line. Yes. Uh, so the final line is they've just euthanized Olaf. Well, and... specifically, uh, Olaf is like dying, and they, yeah. they 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 call for like uh like a doctor or like yeah. like like a like a med staff Medic. member, yeah, yeah, yeah. To come in. Yeah, Which means and... that they send someone who's been in like yeah. a, a different floor, right. And that's when they find out that, hey, like, it's unlikely any of us are ever getting out of here. Um, and then Andor then asks Kino Loy, played by Andy Serkis, uh, how many guards are there per floor? And I think he says, never more than 12 at a time. I think that's the last line, something along those lines, right? It's a great last line because it, it is in stark contrast to an earlier scene when Andor asked him the question. And he's like, I'm going to bed. Good night. You know, please stop talking, right? Uh, it's a great kind of 
parallel to that scene from earlier in the episode. Uh, anything you wanted to highlight about it? Patrick? Just, uh, it's, it's so exciting because uh, again, like you say, it is this parallel. It, it shows the arc Kino has taken. Yes. Uh, where now he is pretty much on Andor's side with this. And it just like, it, it tells you like, oh, they, they could pull this off. It's, uh, this is yeah. how overconfident, uh, the empire is how they're running this place. Like, Never more than twelve at a time that they can do it, and and, well, and, and, and clearly they they think they're going to. At the same time, the idea that they would just like zap an entire floor's worth of guys, like you know, dozens of guys, just kill without any thought or consequences, is really chilling. You know, so they're they they do have some. It's not just like they're running roughshod over the empire. Like there is a lot of danger they have to face. So we'll oh, see yeah. how they face it. Yeah, but we we do know where it ends up, right? We do know that Andor and Melshi get out of there at some point. So. Uh, we know it has a happy question mark ending to some degree. Yeah, I mean, until they until the, the they built the next Death Star in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> I mean, the entire place could blow up, and these are the only two guys who get away. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. That's true. So, anyway, that is the end of the Cassian Andor slash Narkina Five storyline for this week. Let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, McDonald's. Patrick Willems. You know, when Andor gets out of Narkina 5, I bet there's one thing he's going to want to do immediately. What do you think that is, Patrick? I think he's probably going to cruise on over to some, you know, nice planet, maybe maybe Coruscant, maybe Scarif. And he's probably going to – he's going to want to revisit, you know, the reliable, like, like comforts of life. Indeed. I think he's going to cruise on over to a mcdonald's yes he's gonna walk 100%. in there he's gonna talk to one of the crew members and he's gonna and the, the thing about these crew members is i bet they're gonna remember that he likes a big mac with an extra pickle <laughs> and uh may, may, maybe it'll be a crew member you know that, that, that he's that that he's uh interacted with many times before on previous visits and uh and they'll greet him at the drive-thru when he he cruises in with his uh his land speeder uh they'll they'll greet him with a warm smile um and and you know and and cash and, and he's gonna be like he's not gonna say that was all worth it but he's you know because he's obviously been through an ordeal but he's gonna say he's glad he's here now um this episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. And as Patrick points out and sketches out beautifully, uh, McDonald's has been a great source of comfort in many people's lives and probably would be if it existed in the Star Wars universe. It's no surprise that here at Decoding TV, we love the idea of community. Patrick, you know about this. like, And, and I think you can sense it from all the comments that we uh, get and that we talk about in every episode you know we have a community um, here with our show yes uh we have been so grateful to foster a community of tv lovers of uh star wars lovers who truly love each other's company who can bond over our shared excitement about big shows such as Andor, such as the white lotus uh, and that's why i'm really proud and excited for decoding tv to partner with mcdonald's because they truly care about fostering a sense of community and one of the biggest ways they do this is through their incredible crew members who work hard to make you feel like you're right at home when you stop into your local McDonald's. They certainly do that for me at my local McDonald's, which is right down the street from me. I love visiting there and have a great time and get great food every single time I'm there. So uh, a huge thank you to McDonald's crew members everywhere for making our McDonald's visits even more special. McDonald's, I'm loving it. I'm also right. loving it. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> 
I'm glad. That's awesome. Um, so, Patrick, let's talk about some of the other stuff that happened this episode. Uh, great, because a lot happened in this episode. Indeed. Indeed. All right, let's start with uh, the Ferrick stuff. I think that's a good place to start, right? So that's where the episode begins. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we basically learn from Dedra Miro. You know, there's a lot of monologuing from evil people in the episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bix is there. She's uh, about to be tortured. And Dedra Miro gives her this whole speech, kind of reveals everything that she has learned from Pack, who we saw brutally tortured in the last episode. Um, and by the way, later learn that he will be executed, which is just... Yeah, uh, uh, Miro just casually... Uh, they, they ask her if if they he should be hanged. And she I think just... it was like... Is it, it was the pre- the prefect guy that Blevin made a prefect from an earlier episode. I think it was that guy. Yeah. Uh, who's like kind of running Ferex now. And he's like, hey, I'd like to hang this... You know, Dedra says, hey, you can do whatever you want with Pack. And he's like, I'd like to hang him, show everyone who's boss. And she's like, fine, whatever. Um, yep. Which is... I mean, Pack d- barely did anything wrong. You know, like he uh, he went to a separatist meeting, we learn, um, and was paid to keep this radio alive, uh, which, you know, they uh, obviously uh, Bix used to uh, f- kind of siphon stolen equipment right. to people also, like Luthen. hearing about, oh, someone's like record of they once attended a separatist meeting is like, this is... By far the closest to like the red scare mm-hmm. I, I've ever mm-hmm. heard. I mean, as in, we always hear, uh, you know, the empire compared to, you know, the obvious fascist regimes like Nazis, like uh, most specifically. But uh, but this, like, but but that aspect and like the separatist yeah. uh, yeah. feels very close to like, oh, that's just that's just America in like the fifties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and she wants to know everything that Bix knows, and she gives this whole speech about it. Now, I just got to say, I feel like the show is genius because it has spent a lot of the last eight episodes trying to get you to sympathize with Dedra Miro, right? And for people such as myself, it's actually worked because you want to see this as like, hey, this is a, you know, it's a woman trying to make it in a man's empire world and uh yes there's all these men around her who are incompetent and uh and they want to uh have more power than her and they're cramping her style and when she finally triumphs in that big meeting like boy are we rooting for dedra miro and then this episode you see who she really is which is like super evil she is super duper evil and it's fascinating because in any other show in any other show patrick Willems we would just cut straight to this scene. We would never have met the Dramiro before. We wouldn't, that, that character wouldn't even have a name, right? And they would just start with the monologue and how they're going to torture you, and that's it. And then, and then they go away and you never see them again. This is the show that spends seven or eight episodes being like, here's Dedra Mira's back. I'm surprised we haven't met her family yet. Um, here's Dedra Mira's backstory at work. You know, here's all the little inner, the indignity she needs to struggle with while she's trying to make a, a living in the Empire at the ISB. So for, for them to like put all that background in and then just whoop, like now she is literally the worst. It's just a really fascinating way to tell the story. I thought what it think, is B- because uh, we, we've seen scenes kind of like this before 
Uh, and like we've talked about on on this podcast before, uh, we are in Star Wars. We're almost exclusively used to seeing Imperial characters like this uh, just be at best two dimensional yes. inhuman monsters. It's just uh, yes. that that's just their thing. And one of the many interesting things about the show is that they spend so much time uh, humanizing uh these these characters who would normally just be inhuman monsters and showing them dealing with co-workers and trying to impress their bosses and stuff like that and doing all these things you know that lead us to have conversations like we've you know often had where it's like yes we know they're fascists but also like i kind of understand the position she's in at work and i would like her to get one up on that jerk blevin um <laughs> And then, yeah. and then you get to this scene, and you basically see, and and this scene is pretty much what all the work she's been doing for yes. the rest of the season has been leading to, because she just wants to get to this point so bad, and it's like, oh, this is this is who she really is. Yeah, this well, is. Well, a- hold on, hold on, though, Patrick. I would say that I think the function of a lot of those scenes in humanizing his character, it, like in our minds, when we view videos of. Uh, war crimes or whatever in the past, we think, oh, well, I would never, I, I, I not only can't even understand that, I can't understand anyone that would be like that, you know? And I think showing a character like Dedra Miro in her fullness is meant to show you, hey, these are these are human beings. They deal with the same indignities as all of us, and they can be also horrifying monsters as well. Like, it's, it's to make it so that the idea of these characters being monsters um, does not feel so separate from what we yes. encounter in the real world. David, I totally agree. And I think this gets into something that we've talked about before on the show uh, that Anne Orson's very interested in in dealing with which is, and exploring, which is uh, the concept of the banality of evil. Uh, you know, the idea of, of, of people who are, who are, who, who do not view themselves as doing evil things, but because like they're basically just, uh, you know, doing their regular boring office job or whatever. Uh, but it is like, it is in service of, of an, an over of an evil fascist goal. And so, uh, yeah, that's that, you know, that's what you get from like, and most of the time dead Miro is just a person working at the office. Uh, d- dealing with 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 regular workplace stuff, um, and you know, and it's important to realize, like, oh, she is a human being, and and then she is capable of this. She is capable of casually saying, like, yeah, sure, hang that guy, whatever, I don't care. Yeah. I guess it maybe it'll like send a message. Sure, he didn't really do anything like to deserve being executed <laughs> publicly and hanged in the streets for his neighbors to see, and um. But like, let's let's get into the the stuff with Bix. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say as far as uh, the monologue, evil monologues go, it was a great one. Just a great. Dedra Mira knows how to do good evil monologuing. You know what I'm saying? I was I, I I've watched this episode twice. I did get a little tangled up in her metaphor about. I, I mean, it, it was making sense for a bit about like being a like a. A fisherman and casting out a net mm. to like try to catch fish, and but then when she has the line to Bix, where she like leans in really close yeah. and says like, "Are you a fish 
are a thief. That that was that was yeah. I didn't I didn't like that. I, I like the idea of like hey everyone people think everything's a fish and it's like oh there's things that aren't fish. There's things that are like I think yeah, that was maybe the only clumsy line yes. in the whole yeah. thing. But I uh, but that was like the the thing about this scene that I found really chilling is just like the fact that everyone including Bix knows that uh there's nothing she can really say to get out of whatever this torture is going to be like it's it's going to happen it is inevitable she's like uh like Miro is going to do this to her and wants to and then and and and, and this whole time there is uh in the background while while Miro is monologuing um there's this guy named Dr. Gorst who is like prepping something in yeah. the background turned away from her and she'll just like make references to Dr. Gorst and then finally when Miro leaves the room and Dr. Gorst steps in uh and again this is you know it's a Star Wars show and Star Wars is you know generally aiming to be like mostly appropriate for all a bit basically it's always still going to like be like you know pg-13 yes the harshest yes and um even though this is like a fairly adult show like thematically and 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 in terms of like presentation and stuff like that there's they're not gonna be like breaking fingers on this show yeah um and so you you are wondering like okay what what is like a torture they can pull off because usually in star wars tortures we see are just like you know uh especially in like the original trilogy or are actually in like force awakens as well it'll just be like some weird machine with a bunch of like like sparks coming off of it right. or, or, like, or using the force to torture as as in force awakens right yeah, yeah. Like, it, yeah it's usually these fairly abstract things where it's like i don't know i guess it's really hot or or something like that yeah but what this torture is is okay i wrote this down because yeah. uh, I, I wanted to i wanted to be clear on exactly how it works because it's horrifying uh this and this was and the way this scene is directed and acted and written i thought was so effective okay uh so oh okay um i'm 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 sorry oh okay so on uh on an outer rim moon yes. called dyson fray uh that um Basically, there was there was a sentient species that lived there that the Empire needed to clear out, uh, as in basically just wipe out, like genocide, uh, to make room for an Imperial refueling center. Uh, not not even like housing or anything like that, like a refueling center. And and while they were just executing and just just wiping out and killing this entire species uh they happen to get audio recordings of of their like dying screams and cries and uh and they discovered that uh certain like by like re-editing some of some of these like frequencies of the recordings specifically the sounds of the children uh it could have this like uh like extreme physical effect on a human being uh and um and so basically they strap on this like 
basically this headset with headphones to uh to force Bix to just like listen to probably at extreme volumes uh just the like the death cries of uh of children of a of a race that the empire wiped out yeah yeah and we also learn that uh you know they remove the headphones later and uh Dedramiro says hey you want to Tell us the truth right now, the whole truth, because it's repeat listenings that can cause the most damage, which is just like, oh, like that means like the first listening already caused it probably permanent damage. You know, uh, she also talked about pack, like the price he paid was not worth it. It's like, what was the price? Probably like permanent physical damage from right. listening to these sounds. So, again, it's all implication. You don't you never actually hear the sound. Um, well, th- this is OK. Can I just talk about the moment where they like they, they they put the headset on her because this for me was like the moment of the episode. Yes, like I could not believe how effective this was. Yes, I uh, so they have this this shot like like pushing in this tight close up like uh, as like on on Bix's face as uh, Doctor Gorst puts the headset like over her ears uh, and they're pushing in and like into her eyes yeah. as then all other sound. Uh, like once, basically once, like the yeah. headphones come on, all other sound drops out except for her breathing, mm-hmm. and to the point where, so you're so focused on that, and you're just waiting for the sound of what the, the sound that you have just heard described right? for the last yeah. like four minutes is going to kick in, and the law, lo- and like every second that she keeps that, like that you hear her breathing without the sound kicking in, it gets more and more agonizing, and like like the suspense just builds and builds, and then finally, and you don't hear the sound because this is one of those sounds that there's no there's nothing they could create that yeah. would actually deliver on it. You just hear her suddenly like scream in agony and then and then the way this edit is done where she starts screaming they cut to a shot outside the door as suddenly i believe it's yeah. like uh miro steps out the door ha- like closes the door behind her uh close up on like like footsteps like uh, like uh, on feet walking away down the hall and immediately like as her her screams continue hard cut into uh on um on Arcana 5, just a like a bolt being drilled into a machine. And uh and and just like that escalation at the end of that scene and and the and the the, the beautiful but also horrifying audio cut of the scream into like the drilling bolt, uh, I thought was like r- really powerful filmmaking. I agree. Um really good. My it, there's a lot of cutaways to Narkina 5 that were kind of like um, interesting transitions. They're using the sounds of Narkina 5 to mirror the horrors that other characters are feeling. So I thought there were some good transitions this episode. And um, my interpretation of the scene, by the way, Patrick, is like she he puts on the headphones and you see Bix breathing really hard for a few seconds before she screams. So my sense is like there she puts them on and the headphones are already blasting this noise in. And the first few seconds, she's like trying to resist having any reaction and then she can't resist anymore. Um, but yes, it's, it's all really effectively done and really, really horrifying and leaves so much to the imagination. So bravo for creating one of the most harrowing sequences we've ever seen in star Wars. Uh, people, uh, Toby Haynes, I think. Yeah. Episode, right? yeah. Uh, Toby Haynes. I've been singing his praises for years. Uh, re- really knocked this one out of the park. Yeah. Uh, okay. 
couple of other things about the Miro storyline. Let's follow kind of Miro around, right? Um, there is uh, we we Miro goes back to the ISB, and we kind of get a sense of what is going on, uh, like what fruit was uh, extracted from this whole series of interrogations and terrorizing. Um, they they are keeping Bix alive because she is one of the only people in the galaxy that can visually identify who Axis is, aka Luthen. Which did strike me as a bit of a loose end for Luthen to leave. Like he was willing to murder Cassian Andor, but I guess it's like Bix was on his side, so he didn't think it was necessary to murder her. But you get the sense that Luthen cannot be visually identified by very many people. Um, they're they're also also questioned like, hey, why aren't you torturing Marva? And it's like, well, she's old and frail. And maybe Andor is going to come back for her. So we'll like, keep an eye on her, right? By the way, there was a uh, conversation earlier on where it's like Pack went to a separatist meeting and was paid to keep this radio alive by a woman, who a, a contact, who I think it's implied was Clea. I don't know if you had any interpretation of that. But anyway. Uh, that, was the, that was what I assumed as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So... Uh, Partagaz is like super happy with all this information. He's like, wow, maybe yeah. there's an Aldani connection. Like that could really increase interest in this topic. You know, like well, th- th- this whole thing comes up because I, I, they learn from Bix because I, uh, I, you know, Bix is only human. And uh, I'd, I look, I'd probably admit a bunch of stuff if I had to deal with that as well. Um, but uh, she says that Cassian did come back to Ferrix, uh like a few days earlier, and that she did see him, and that he was clean shaven. Uh, so she does give up this information, and this is how they start. They start to put together that maybe he was involved in Aldani because they say that uh, he had. Oh, Bix says that he had money, so he had yeah. money, and he was Ald- clean shaven. Right, had money so. and he was clean shaven, and they say the uh, the people who pulled the Aldani heist were clean shaven because they had to blend in as guards. So they start. So, I mean, the, the thing is, Miro is good at her job. She yeah. has figured out that uh, correctly that Cassian was at Aldani, yeah. uh, and so so yeah, she's uh, she's impressing the higher ups. Uh, you know, I bet she wishes Blevin was there to like you know uh feel bad about his failure yeah. once again but um but yeah she's she's piecing things together we get a couple scenes with Cyril Karn just more scenes of his mom really ragging on him and <laughs> okay <laughs> she is not happy with him and then he says i got a promotion which i actually think we are led to understand is true he was not lying to her um he he he, be, he did get promoted he mentions because, it again because Miro basically helped to clear his name, I well, think is kind of the implication. David, go ahead, David. Go ahead. Don't 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 jump ahead here. Oh, okay. You're okay. skipping over important stuff. First Please. of all, when he with the scene with Karn and and Edie, uh, yeah. his mom. Um, first of all, we learn that that Cyril has a private box. <laughs> this is huge content. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he has a private box, and he's mad that she looked in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's there's that, which I just think is incredible. Also, one of my favorite moments uh, that Cyril Karn has had on screen, and I, I have a lot of favorite Karn moments. We have him picking up his cereal bowl and slurping milk from it. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we have 
the best scene of the episode. I mean, you're saying episode, Patrick. I submit uh, in the series thus far, right? You, you know what? I I would not argue with that uh, because I love the scene so much. So much. As <laughs> look, we've mentioned already in this episode that uh, look, this is the number one podcast that you should be listening to if you are all aboard the Kiro ship. Um, and, uh, because we, I, I think, I think we started that ship. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we built that I, ship. I, I mean, we called it, we called it, I we, have to say. We did. We did. We said it way before those characters had ever met. Just mm. like, I hope they meet because they are made for each other. Yes. And then, and, and last week, very exciting. They finally met in, in the interrogation room and boy, oh boy, <laughs> this week. Whew. Okay. Cyril is just loitering outside the ISB offices and just just like cuts in front of of Miro when she's mm-hmm. coming in because he has to talk to her and he he says to her um I come sometimes to see if I'll see you. He has been going there repeatedly just to try, just to hope that he that he'll run into her. He'll catch a glimpse of of Miro, right? He he is in love. <laughs> it is. Um, I wrote down the the quote of the episode as much as everyone mm-hmm. is probably you know uh you know like I, i've seen everyone on twitter quoting like uh you know uh never more than 12 at a time but the quote of the episode to me is just being in your presence i realized i realized that, that life, that life is, is, worth is worth living living <laughs> i realized that if nothing else there was justice and beauty in the galaxy and if i just kept going Perhaps my deranged belief that there was something better fated for me in the future was a dream worth clinging to. Bravo. This, and it is, it is incredible because he 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 first thanks her for the promotion. She's like, I didn't promote you, and but I I guess she 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 cleared his record by saying Yeah. She gave him a clean bill of health, is what she yes. says. Uh yes. she said that, you know, he was not like really responsible for these bad things happening. Then he got a promotion, but he just, but to Karn, he has met like a kindred spirit in this world, someone who shares his ideals and his beliefs, someone who also knows that Cassian Andor is the person they have to hunt down. He wants her so bad. She is so disgusted by him. She <laughs> threatens to have him locked up on some outer rim planet. <laughs> And I love it. I I I love this so much. These these two awful people, these <laughs> vile little pasty, sickly looking fascists. They are they're they're falling in love. It's happening. Uh, Hero number one ship on television right now. Mm, totally, I've been calling it from the beginning. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I I I will say I think we both called it like i think i was on board the kiro ship right along with you Patrick, oh, oh, you know? oh D- D- david you you are my partner here yes i mean i am I, it's it is amazing because like everything that cyril karn does in the show is so pathetic right it's <laughs> it's like it, he, he is constantly being humiliated on the show mm-hmm. and this is probably the biggest humiliation because it is one that he inflicted upon himself you know Absolutely, um, by groveling at the foot of this uh, this person. I mean, like, um, like the next thing 
I expect to see is him like throwing pebbles at her window at night <laughs> to try to get her attention. Uh, it, it is. Do you it's think he'll show her his se- private box? <laughs> I hope by the season finale, <laughs> Karn shows Miro his private box. That's mm-hmm. what I want to see. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's it's great because of how diametrically opposed in attitude these two people are, right? Like, uh, Cyril Karn is like, literally, I am alive today because of you. You know, like, if it wasn't for you, I would not be, I would not wish to have the will to continue living. But knowing that there's someone out there that hates Cassian Andor as much as me helps motivate me. And she is just, he is nothing to her. He is a, a gnat, a fly, uh, flying around her face that she's trying to swat away. Um, it's amazing to watch. I just love seeing Dedra Miro's reaction to like literally everything he's saying. Cause there, there, there's not even a hint, there's not even a hint of affection there. Not even a no. hint of sympathy or any recognition that, Hey, this other person is like, this is another human being in front of me. That's like, you know, exposing their, bearing their soul to me. Nothing. Just nothing. It's I mean, a brick the, wall. The part when he says, I keep thinking back to our conversation last month. She says, you were brought in for questioning. <laughs> it, wasn't a, it wasn't a conversation. You know, it was an interrogation. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's so funny. It is, yes. it is truly so entertaining. And uh, I just, I can't wait to see more of these people. And again, it's, it's, it's a real testament to the show that I will be so delighted and laughing at this scene with Dedra Miro after her scenes from earlier yes. in this episode. Yes. Where she's like, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, she's like really at this point, like a more like vile, loathsome character than like Darth Vader was. <laughs> or, or Krennic, you know? Yeah. 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 Oh, I, oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, compared to these people, Krennic is, is like a hero. <laughs> Um, so Miro goes to the office and like one of her underlings says, Hey, we found a random pilot who basically, uh, they were able to like detect that they were using stolen Imperial equipment. Right. They then sent Dr. Gorst over to the thing. And by the way, I just want to say like these, uh, torture guys in TV shows and movies, they always have a pretty specific look. They always look a little bit, just a little bit off in terms of like the haircut, the wardrobe, just a little bit off. I watched True Lies the other day on Hulu, which I'd strongly recommend. And in True Lies, there's a guy who's like supposed to torture Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know if you remember. And he kind of he he has a lot of Gorst vibes, Patrick. Anyway, I'm just saying You're it's right. a type. It's a type. I mean, I mean to be fair, uh, Gorst really fits in pretty perfectly amongst like literally every Imperial person in the show. Totally. Totally. Also, uh, the actor playing him is Joshua James. Mm, for anyone nice. wondering. Yeah, uh, both he and Dedramiro give some great monologues this episode, uh, you know, about how evil they are. So anyway, uh, they capture this pilot. They do the Gorse treatment on them. They interrogate him, and they basically find out that um, what Luthen was talking to Saul Guerrero about last episode, the uh, raid on Spellhouse, uh, is in the works. And Anto, it's Anto Krieger's... Uh, like he's supervising it. I don't think they know that Ento Krieger is on the other side yet. Is my understanding? Like, was my takeaway? Because Ento Krieger is, like, is Ento Krieger working for the Empire at this point? Like, do you, do we remember what what his deal was? 
No, no. Uh, he he's a he's a separatist leader. It's, it's oh, like, okay, okay. So they know he's evil. Okay, got it, got it. Okay. Uh, or they know he's against the the uh, the empire. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the thing where the rebellion is kind of fractured into yeah, multiple yeah. groups, and so he's he's in one group. But uh, but I mean, like the empire are there called, talking about this rebel pilot uh, who's part of the group run by Krieger. Got it. So they, Anto Krieger is on their radar and uh, they know to be suspicious that he might be involved in this attack on Spellhouse. Also, they mention, I think, that the pilot that they interrogated was heading to Krafreen, uh, which is the place that is in one of the opening sequences of Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Um, in Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Cassian Andor is meeting with a contact who is supposed to give him information about a planet killer device, right? So like the ring of uh, Kefreen, the, yeah. the, the cool place that's like two yeah. planets, two like, planets like upside down, like a yeah. city in between them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, nice Rogue One reference there uh, and see, kind of shows where we're heading with the story. Um, but they are basically going to try to stop the Spellhouse thing. I'm very curious, like how they're like, how much of the spellhouse thing are we going to know about? Is that going to be the next Aldani type set piece or or not? I'm very curious. So. Also, can we talk about Miro's plan about what to do with this pilot? Yeah, go ahead. Because they're trying to figure out, like, okay, yeah. uh, do we just blow up his ship? Do we? But, yeah. but like, they're like, oh, they don't know he's been captured yet, and so her plan is, oh, uh, just kill the pilot and then damage his ship but make it seem like it had an accident and then have it drift down uh you know to to kafreen to like be picked up there but just again she is just casually ordering executions left and right and here's the thing you know patrick in an earlier scene i might have been like go go dedra you know Go go do that thing you're doing. And now after seeing her brutally torture Bix, I'm like, okay, I don't I'm not rooting for you. I'm not rooting for this to succeed anymore. You know? So David, I I'm I'm sorry that, that Dedra finally broke your heart and mm-hmm. you, you're no longer you're no longer Team Dedra. I'm no longer Team Dedra. I mean they are against freedom for everyone, you know? <laughs> she she is against freedom and justice, so I guess that's I guess I guess it was always the case and I just Yeah. I just didn't allow myself to see it, you know? On the one hand, yeah. she is an evil fascist who tortures people. On the other hand, eh, she's just trying to impress her boss. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll see how that plays out with Ento Krieger and Spellhouse and this plan of hers. I, I, I expect we'll see that next episode. Um, only other thing to mention about this episode is Mon Mothma. And um, uh, the big revelation of this episode. Yes. So Monmothma, she's giving a speech against the P.O.R.D. The P.O.R.D. No one's listening to her. No one gives a sh- uh, gives a crap, you know. Um, but she goes home, and her driver says, "Hey, your cousin's here." She's like, "What? My cousin's here already?" Uh, and we find out that um, Monmothma's cousin is Vel. Is that right? Yes, Vel is her cousin. Uh, I was losing my mind when I saw this. You know? I know, and this coming right after, like a what seemed like a pretty plausible theory, uh, you know, th- that uh, a listener sent in about maybe she's Luthen's daughter, and um, I heard that and I was like, oh yeah, that checks yeah. out. 
Because yeah. like like I I because the show is uninterested in the like the kind of like the winky connections to other Star Wars stuff. I was in no way expecting Vel to be someone Luke, from Luke Skywalker's cousin or anything like that, right? right. Yeah. Or like someone from Clone Wars or whatever. Uh, yeah. But I was like, yeah, just like. Especially because we've been learning a bit more about her, the little tidbit about like her coming from money, and I was like, "Yeah, Luthen's daughter makes sense." Uh, and uh, but no, she is a Mothma, uh, which is an exciting revelation. And like, it's it's fun. To, like, she's there with Lita, uh, and she's like Lita's cool aunt. She gets her like a nice new dress and stuff like that. There's a, a dinner table conversation where Perrin is like. Oh, why aren't you married yet? Don't you know that, like, like at your age, all the good husbands are probably gone except for widowers. Parents sucks. Just want to parents, be very clear parents, about that. Parents sucks, but what's also interesting is Vel's reaction. She just basically goes along with whatever parents saying, right? Because she she is good. She's better than Mon, she's better than Mon, right? Mon is like what? Like the outrage, you know? Like Mon is like freaking out basically every single scene we see her in, yeah, um, in the show. And Vel is just cool as a cucumber she's like yes Perrin insult my age and looks you know like I don't care because my job is not to raise any suspicion whatsoever right and Vel is doing her job better than Mon is at this point in my opinion. well what I think so. is so interesting about this is that Mon is not aware that Vel was responsible for Aldani correct I think that's and, right. And uh, she, she's like, where have you been for the, the last yeah. six months? And she's like, oh, I've she been... Said, no, she says, what, did, what does he have you doing? What does yeah. oh, yes. have you doing? You he, he, yes. Uh, he knows, like, they're both... They both know Luthen. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're involved in different ways, but but Mon is still basically the... Uh, like... like the good liberal who is, like, you know, trying to do things, like, like the, the regular way, and is like... Yeah. And like associates with some radicals, but still is like a little freaked out by uh, by their methods. And and Vel is full radical, and yeah. um and and like like Mon is not entirely aware of like how of how radical her cousin is. Correct, correct. And her cousin is putting up a really good front. So yeah, uh, yeah. It's nice to see Vel and Mon interacting with each other. And, and but I think a point you made in a previous episode is just like. When we, whenever we see Mom Mothma prior to Andor, she's always has her stuff together. She's like, "Hey, I'm going to send like five thousand people to death," you know, like to on behalf of the rebellion. Like, very calm, cool, and collected. Um, here, as I indicated, she's really not on board, full blown with the rebellion at this point in in her life. And so, it's it'll be interesting to see how her journey evolves. So, yeah, and and then the last scene uh, with Mon is is her. Uh, talking to tay again yes i do i just just want to mention uh that um vel does repeat the line that cinta said to her of like um the rebellion comes first like we we get everything else that's left over or something along those lines um we've chosen in our she also says we've chosen a side we're fighting against the dark making something of our lives end quote so um she vel is a true believer also um really makes Avell's annoyance at Andor showing up like four or five episodes ago uh, ring a lot more true because if she, she's like used to the rich life and she's been sleeping in a tent for five months, uh, I can understand why she was so annoyed. So anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. This guy gets to skip all, all the misery we've been dealing with. 
Okay, anyway, so final scene with Mon. She's talking with um, Tay, and they're trying to figure out how to explain this, like, money that's, like... Right, and and he's saying it's not as quite as easy to, like, set this thing up as, uh, like, like as, as she hoped it would be, unless yeah. she's able to make a huge deposit of 400,000 credits, and she's like, I, I need a loan for that, and so he... And this is when he's like, well, I have a guy who could help you, and it is... Davo Skulden. And yeah. uh, t- to be clear, Davo Skulden is not, to, to our knowledge, a pre-existing Star Wars character. He's not a character who's appeared in the show before. We don't know anything about him other than that that Mon is shocked by this idea and considers him to be a thug. And so this makes me very excited to f- to potentially meet Davo Skulden in maybe the next episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We got some great new Star Wars names this episode. Davos Skeldon is one of them. Um, there's also the guy that kind of told all the people in Narkina 5 like what was going on. Uh, Zinska. The new, oh, yeah. new guy. Zinska. Zinska, Davos Skeldon, some really nice Star Wars names. So, okay. That's what happened this episode. I am very curious to see what happens next episode. It's going to be the concluding chapter of this three-episode arc. Uh, any closing thoughts, Patrick Williams? Um, I'm extremely excited for the next episode. Uh, this is at at this point, you know, there's always the chance that the season will end, uh, on a disappointing note, but this far in three quarters of the way through season one of Andor, I'm like, this is one of my favorite shows of 2022. Totally. Uh, It's my favorite show on television right now. So, and I, I watch a lot of television. You do. You do. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm loving it. <laughs> All right. Well, that is going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Decoding TV. Patrick, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Uh, more of my work on the internet can be found over at youtube.com slash Patrick H. Willems. Um, and then I'm on, you know, the social media platforms. Uh, I, 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 I'm still there for now uh, over at Patrick H. Willems. And you can find us at, uh, at Decoding TV on YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. Uh, find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. And of course, email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Also, I want to point out next week is going to be a momentous occasion because if everything goes smoothly, which I'm not sure it will, um, Patrick and I are going to be recording Decoding TV in person for the first and possibly only time ever. Um, so we have both been invited to attend the Hawaii International Film Festival. Uh, as mentors, and we are both going to be staying in the same hotel and uh, hopefully recording live next week. So that's something we've never done, and it should add a certain frisson to the proceedings. So I'm really looking forward to that, Uh, and you can look forward to it too here on Decoding TV. He is Patrick Willems. I'm David Chen. We'll see you next week.